Uh, as most of you know, we have a, a lively, ongoing relationship with the Church of Rwanda. That's expressed through comings and goings, visitings and help given, help, uh, wisdom offered in both directions. And here uh, I introduce to you Pastor Jean-Baptiste, who is the Director of Youth for Christ Rwanda. Here's a microphone for you, Jean-Baptiste. He's going to introduce himself, uh, but kids, I especially want to take, this is our typical time together, right? I want you to know brave, bold people like Jean-Baptiste, uh, and that we're connected with such people. So please. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> My name is Jean-Baptiste, as he just introduced me. It's the French for John the Baptist. And maybe there is a reason when I come to the English-speaking world, I say Jean-Baptiste. When I go to the French-speaking world, I say John the Baptist. Just in case Herod might be around. <laughs> it's a pleasure for me to be here this morning. I have been thinking about Idaho for so many years because of a place called Emmet that I got to know in 1980. Never knew where that was and... All the travels that I've had in the U.S., I've never been to Idaho except last Friday. And behold, he was there to welcome me. And as soon as we arrived at his home, then he took us to the house of Timothy. And with your wife, I was so pleased to eat African food on the American soil. The hospitality here has been so overwhelming. My, you know, people have worked on my back, on different stuff. And uh, I visited Emmett yesterday. Thank you, my friend, with your family and the kids hosting me. I really thank God for you guys. Here is the thing. I may be talking about Youth for Christ Rwanda for I don't know how many days. But before I say something a little bit about Youth for Christ, let me say something about you. I came here to visit Pastor Elson. I had some work to do in uh, Tennessee, in uh, Michigan, in Nevada, but I felt it's my duty to come and check on him because I know the person that I traveled with several weeks ago from Rwanda and Alliance was we, you know, ready to come and meet us in Chicago. The question was, is he going to survive? Is he going to make it? I have questions back home, people asking me, how is he doing? Even this morning, I got a message asking me, how is he doing? But let me tell you what I find here. It's hot outside here. I've never been to Sahara Desert. But I know in the desert there is uh, what I think in English, if you pronounce it well, uh, you know, forgive me, English is my fourth language. I think the word oasis, is it, is it correctly pronounced? Travelers who are on a long journey in the hot sun, you know, scorched by sun and disturbed by the long distance, they come to an oasis where there is life. Life, the trees, the water, and they can be refreshed. Coming here, I see Pastor Elson in the journey of life, with all the troubles that we, we face, he comes here and he finds an oasis. 
where there is life. It's your people in your families, the doctors, business people, the pastors, the kids hosting him and taking care of him that makes him sit there, smile, and I can tell by, you know, the family back that he's smiling. And let me tell you, in your homes, yes, I have communicated with him on FaceTime, him cooking in your kitchen, him telling me that I am cooking my food, I want it. That is the big news I'm taking back home. And I'll say yes, in the journey of life, going through the desert of life, he comes to an oasis. It's you people that are a symbol of life and a symbol of what we call Christian brotherhood. You know, Christians, the neighbor, you people telling Pastor Elson, you are my neighbor because of Christ. I love you just like I love myself. So I wanted to start here to say thank you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for that email. Thank you for that ticket. Thank you for the hospitality. Thank you for all the connections, the doctors, the nurses, everybody, your wife. Thank you for taking care of Elson and definitely for my sweetheart there, Alliance, who has found home here. But I pray that, yeah, some boys here will open their eyes and they give me the dowries, which are the cows. <laughs> I work for you for Christ in a country that has been destroyed by genocide, the war, the massacres, all the atrocities imaginable that we experienced in the 90s. And God put in my heart the vision to reach out to the teenagers of Rwanda and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these kids. And I pioneered Youth for Christ in Rwanda in 1994, a time when the country was going in turmoil, a time when over one million lives were killed in the hands of teenagers using machetes and clubs and whatever, and AK-47. A time when evil politicians mobilized kids to kill the neighbor. And here we are talking about a neighbor who might be thousands of miles away, Elson coming here, and you show love. And I said, that's the love of Christ I want in my country, where people see even the person next to them who may not look same to them, who might be different. They say, this is my neighbor. We are different, but I can love this person and express the love of Christ to this person. So in 1994, politicians mobilized kids to kill the neighbors, and we lost over one million lives. And God put in my heart to share the truth of the gospel with the kids. That's what we've been doing with Youth for Christ. We are serving all, you know, over the country with our 180 full-time staff. We are working with different churches. We have over 500 volunteers. And my life is about these kids of Rwanda, the teenagers, to help them to make a decision to be followers of Jesus Christ, ensure that there is discipleship taking place in churches, but also develop them to be the leaders who tell the world who tell the country that we are followers of Jesus Christ. We want the best for everybody. And the best for everybody is, first of all, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Love God with all your heart, but also love your neighbors you love yourself. 
With that, I believe we can build a nation. With that, we can build a church. With that, we can be a blessing to the world. That's what we are doing. With Youth for Christ, we also started Kigali Christian Schools, two campuses, and we have now 1,888 students per May this year. And God willing, we'll add another campus in the north, not too far away from where Pastor Elson lives. And actually, he played a key role for us to be starting ministry there. And he oversees, he's the chairman of our chapter in the north, where God willing, we'll start a school. The construction is almost done. We are waiting to be able to raise money and have the kids in that school. So briefly, without taking much your time, I love you guys. I came here, you embraced me. I came here, I found Pastor Elson is just in the hands of brothers and sisters in Christ. Then I met your team and your wife and your kids want to be a policeman and we are running fast, trying some games with your youngest daughter. We played games and with the gentleman who's been working on my back, <laughs> him and his wife, thank you. Thank you. I feel I can take all of you with me back to Rwanda. I want to steal some people here. Take them to Rwanda to help me tell the Rwandans this is what brother, you know, brothers in Christ, that's what it's all about. To tell the story to the Rwandans. And indeed here, the Idaho Porito will be here. And the elk and the whatever. And the bison. The food, all the delicious stuff. Thank you. I love you guys. I can go on and on. You know, be careful when you give an African the microphone. We, you know, the problem with you uh, people in the West, you have the watch, you don't have the time. We do not have the watch, we have time. God bless you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again, Jean-Baptiste. That was very encouraging to us. Many of you are familiar with the story of Odysseus, the Greek, who returned home to the island kingdom of Ithaca after he'd been away for 20 years fighting in the Trojan War. That part of the Odyssey, that, that the king returning home, it has a lot in common with a folk tale, folk tale, that's found all across Europe and parts of Asia. And across the stories, there's these common elements. There's a king. The king is given various motivations in the stories, but in all of them, he disguises himself as a beggar. That's one of the features. Uh, and he does this beggar disguise in order to observe his people. And he's observing them to discern the worth uh, of either his whole people or the worth of a certain segment of the population. In some of the stories, he's choosing a wife. And so he's, he's trying to judge their worth in that way. In others, he's choosing a successor because he's childless. But in all of the stories, the majority of the people mistreat and insult him. He's a king. They see him as a beggar. They kick him. They abuse him. While one person, another common feature, one person draws near and feeds him, clothes him, treats him with dignity. The early church, early Christians, saw these stories as preparatory work, God's preparatory work. 
Because similar to how God visited Israelites, visited uh, Abraham, as we heard in our Genesis reading this morning, how he visited Jacob, Moses, Joshua, how he often sent his angels, he may also have sent his angels to prepare other peoples for his ultimate supreme visitation. There were stories that the divine God might come and walk with us and talk with us so that when God came in Jesus Christ, there was a prepared place in human understanding. There was a, a cultural reception just to the idea. The king of kings might well come to be with us. A king disguised as a beggar, weighing the worth of people and pronouncing a verdict. Well, as we all know, the verdict was guilty. Thoroughly, 100% guilty. When the king came, the son of God came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one that's good, the psalmist says. Not one. And so the king, Jesus, he expressed the rightful judgment in multiple parables. You read the Gospels, you see he's telling this verdict. As in the story of a king who returned to his kingdom after an absence, and he commanded that the rebels be brought before him and killed. This verdict and the judgment of guilt was expressed, declared, and executed at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the verdict. Because what, what no story had conceived, what no, no imagination could have come up with, the king himself clears the guilty. The, the judgment is guilty. He clears them by taking the punishment. There was no fitting bride, if we take the stories. There was no fitting king, no fitting successor. There was no righteous one worthy of reward. And so the king created them. He created worthy ones, but he had to declare the verdict. This changes everything, doesn't it? Because the king makes new creations who are able to live in an everlasting kingdom. Our experience of the world has become radically different from the rest of the world. The coming of the king and his recreating work changes everything. Changes what we have inherited. It's radically different from what's all around us. And this radical difference is the new birthright of every Christian. And the Apostle Paul wanted the Christians of Corinth to understand this. They want, and he wanted them to live it in the goodness of it. That's where we're looking. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. As he's taking this idea, trying to help this church of Corinth live the new reality. Christ our King wants us through his word. He wants us to grasp it. He wants us to live in this freedom. 
He wanted the church of Corinth to live it. He wants us, almost 2,000 years later, to live it. For many Christians, and that's it's probably true of a lot of us here, the life we have in Christ is tough to grasp because we believe favor from God should mean certain things. If the God of the universe favors us, it should mean more ease in life. We just kind of carry that assumption. It, it might maybe more wealth, more power, more comfort, less days of 100 degrees. We ought to have ease if God favors us because we hold on to a worldly focus. We understand goodness and favor in a worldly way. Now, it is true that our new life in Christ should change our earthly life. It should change our day to day. But not in a way that's going to make us more attached to what's perishing. New life in Christ should cause us to flourish more in our day to day. But not in a way that will cause us to clutch and seize things that will kill us that will ultimately lead us away from him. But those are the things we kind of want. The truth is the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. We tend to want the things that are seen. So living our new life and having an eternal perspective is what Paul addresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he doesn't shy away from looking squarely at what causes us, us Christians, to shrink back from the eternal stuff. The troubling reality is here in verse 7, chapter 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God not to us. This treasure, it's the new creation mentioned in verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That was, it's been spoken into our hearts. God spoke recreation into our hearts. So we have a treasure. He's awakened life in us, and yet we still have it in this jar of clay. Throughout the ancient world, this was a common metaphor. Paul is very good with metaphors, but he borrows a lot of them. This is a common Greek metaphor for a human life. It's a jar of clay. Brittle. Easily broken. For Stoic philosophy, this, this brittleness was something to be overcome by the human will. We have it in us. To overcome our brittleness, we by our own power and will can fill the cracks. Be careful that you're not more of a Stoic than a Christian. For Christians, our frailty is a reality to accept. It is not something we have in us to overcome. It's a reality. And it serves the honor of God. If we want to approach our Christian life like Stoics, we'll rob the honor of God and take it to ourselves. 
but it's his honor to show that the surpassing, the overcoming power belongs to God and not to us. So how can our weakness show God's power? That's a reasonable question. How can the brittleness of this, these jars of clay declare the goodness of God and the gospel? Look at verses 8 to 10. How does this work? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Affliction, suffering, perplexity, persecution, being stricken, knowing, having a painful sense of our frailty and weakness. These are things that are, they're all received. They're, they're received. Notice the, the passive voice. Paul uses the passive voice. That means the agency bringing the stuff is not us. These are things that happen to us. Hard things, Paul says, have come to him. And it wasn't because he ran into the danger. He's suggesting that these sufferings that are common to those who have new life in Christ. From here to here today, there's affliction, perplexity, confusion, difficulty. We are always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. That judgment on sin that Jesus received at the cross, we're always receiving it. We're re throughout our earthly life, we're, what I'm saying is we're always experiencing the curse. The reason Jesus went to the cross, it's still in our flesh. The fallenness, the brittleness, the brokenness. That's not part of the design, is it? That, Jesus went to the cross to eliminate that. But we're always experiencing in our bodies, notice where he's in our bodies, the death of Jesus, why he died. This happens in two senses. I'm saying one right now. We are living in a flesh that's subject to bodily death. Our bodies are weak and decaying. As he says it in verse 16, our bodies are wasting away. So as long as you live, you're going to wrestle with the consequences of a world gone wrong. We have also, not just in our muscles and our joints, we have unwelcome bodily responses. Your body chemicals are working against eternal life in you. The life you have in Christ, your, your bodily impulses, your emotional responses will undermine your desire to live towards the eternal. Did you experience that sometime this morning? Probably. A bodily response, an emotional response that you know is it's not in keeping with everlasting life. And yet there it is. This is frustrating. But it stands as a constant reminder of our weakness and our dependence on God and on His power. 
Again, we are carrying in the body the same death Jesus died so that the life he lives may also be manifested in our bodies. Second, we are carrying the death of Jesus in another way too. The same powers that brought about the death of Jesus and the same human rebellion against God that necessitated his death are still at work in the world. What I mean is hostility against God is set against the people of God. There are forces both spiritual and human set against God and his people. But those forces can't touch our souls. Kids, I know sometimes you get worried about, you're worried about this idea, that there's an unseen. It can't touch your soul. But forces both human and spiritual can touch our bodies. It's in this way that we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. God allows his people to suffer hostility. It is allowed. He allows us to suffer these forces that are committed to death because it shows the life of Jesus visible in us in bodily ways. When we endure hostility against us and we're able, show, it manifests, it shows there's another power at work. So how does this work? How does the life of Jesus show forth in our bodies? Paul's explaining these effects of hate and weakness. God sustains his people who know him. We are not crushed. We're not driven to despair. We're not forsaken or abandoned. We're not destroyed. So no matter what happens with us, to us, he is with us. He's with us. What would otherwise destroy a person? And there are things that hit believers daily in many parts of the world. Unimaginable things. If we sat with them, I don't, I don't know if we could return to the thought. What would otherwise destroy a person is turned for good. Because it shows there's something in a believer. There's something in one of God's people that's more powerful than a human will. Whether the, your own will or the will of others against you. There's something more powerful than that. It's God and it's life himself. Now Paul says this, this is, it's not just some idle, idealistic statement. It's what he has experienced. He and his companions, verses 13 to 14, he says, as we believe, we can actually testify. That's a quotation from the psalm we had this morning, Psalm 116. As I believe, I spoke. I'm afflicted. As he has believed and said, he can also testify to the truth of it. So even though they suffered in all sorts of ways, ways most of us couldn't imagine, 
he has found that the overcoming power of Christ Jesus was shown. And he's been encouraged. Here's how he's been encouraged. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to this. For it's all for your sake, he goes on. So that as grace extends to more and more people, grace flowing out, it may increase thanksgiving to God, praise to God. Grace can't be given to people who don't know they need it. Grace is not given to people who say, I can do it on my own. I'm not in fact a jar of clay, I'm actually pretty solid. Grace doesn't come there. Grace is given to those who with hands outstretched say, I need, I am in fact frail. And that it results in cascading praise. So to come back around to Paul's purpose in this section, God's people are always given a different way of thinking than the rest of the world. We are given back what the first man and woman rejected. And we're giving it back bit by bit, little by little, slow by slow. This is his summary statement, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, the jar of clay, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen that we tend to seize on are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Despite the continued course of our mortal flesh towards death. And we are all dying. As we walk through life, we are inwardly changing. We're being renewed day by day. And the effect of this walk, this light momentary affliction, he calls it, is to aid in our transformation. The afflictions of our day to day are to be towards our transformation. It's part of what we saw last week. Cast your mind back. Remember what we saw, that all now with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking at Jesus, are being transformed into the same image, His image, from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed into His image. The image we were made, designed to bear. Recreation is happening. It was defaced. It was robbed of glory, but it's what's being restored in us. Being renewed day by day. And what he's saying, and we don't like, and I don't like, is that affliction has its role in that restoration. How? Hardship helps us look to the things that are unseen. Because if we can't play the human game of measuring our worth by tangible things, 
by bank accounts, by clothes, cars, houses, effectiveness, success, and whatever, if we can't play that game, that's not actually where worth comes from, we just might begin valuing according to the things that last. So it's ironic that we often get angry with God for allowing us to lose the things that are hindering us from valuing Him. I get most upset when God takes something from me that is actually leading me away from Him. We yell at God for taking away what kept our eyes from seeing truly, kept us from valuing appropriately. He would, to consider last week, He would give us the Grand Canyon. He would give us Yellowstone National Park. He would give us the highest mountains and the deepest oceans. We would settle for a picture book. He's leading us to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we are angry when He takes away our dream of being the star in our play. That, that play we started writing for ourselves when we were young. We're the star and he, he wants to give us a different part. The little drama we occupy and we don't like that. So why don't we turn, this is the last point, why don't we turn to the Lord in hardships? This is the strangest thing, isn't it? Sometimes we do. But why not always? Why don't we all have a testimony to, that we could confidently say, every time a difficulty comes, I turn to the Lord? Why not continually? It is because it's a matter of what we truly believe about reality. What we truly believe is what we, what we do. If our trust in Jesus was foremost, if our sense of identity was rooted in our everlasting place, if our sense of self was the forefront, was belonging to Jesus and operating in the unseen, then that would be the primary filter for how we receive criticism from a spouse, from a child, from a parent, from a coworker. That would be the primary filter for how we receive difficulty, opposition, trouble, trouble of every kind. But what we do instead is we continue to listen more to our bodies than to our convictions, which is where the Spirit speaks. The Spirit speaks in that inmost place of conviction. What do we do? This is why we have to continually hear the gospel, continually hear the word of God. You might get it. Maybe you, I hope you don't get annoyed that we, we speak the gospel every week. We have to keep hearing the gospel. The gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for non-Christians. It's for Christians. We have to keep hearing it. You could say we're leaky jars of clay. We leak, that, that's a common cliche. You could also say we're sheep. And we follow the voice that we're accustomed to follow. And so 
if the voice that predominates in our life is other than the voice of God, that's the voice we follow. And it's a voice that comes to us through the world, through the flesh, and through the devil. Scripture is very clear about all of this. So if you want to be ready for hardship and trouble, for opposition, if you want to be ready to receive criticism when it comes, begin today to hear the word of God daily. His voice is, in fact, much more powerful than your body. The voice of the body, the voice of the world, and the voice of the devil. It's much more powerful. Take evidence. Three minutes, five minutes in the scripture counteracts five, six, seven, eight hours of worldliness. Have you noticed that? That's testimony of the power of the, the word of God. It can overcome hours and hours of soaking in the world. Live in it. Let the Lord give you the gift of freedom. He's offering. The Lord's offering us a gift of renewing us in his image day by day orienting us to our eternal place, to the values and the worth that we have that are precious. You, in fact, have an eternal weight of glory. Let's accept that gift. And we do it by the word of God. That's how God speaks to us. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. We, we declare thanks for your gift of speaking, your gift of speaking the word of light and recreation into our hearts, speaking the knowledge of you in the face of Jesus. Thank you that you do work in us even when we're not even aware of it, that listening to your word just that little bit does something. You are good and powerful and we praise you. Lord, I ask that you would give aid to us. You'd give us your will. Give us that overcoming power to draw near to you as you offer life to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.